Section 2. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth. Section 2. Mr. Proud's Oceana. I feel that my introductory medley would still be incomplete if I did not allude, somewhat more than I have already done, to Mr. Proud's recently published Oceana, a work which, in its vigour and high literary style, marks quite an era in its Australian field. I had regretted before embarking that, from the pressure of other things, my acquaintance with it had been limited to the reading of many reviews and the hearing of much criticism. But I have been well compensated by a perusal during the peace and ample leisure of this long voyage. I must confine my remarks to two points only, which, however, are amongst the most prominent in the book. These are, first, the terms in which he has alluded to the present condition of New Zealand, and second, his ardently loyal remarks, so often repeated upon that rising question of the day, the political unity of the empire, a subject which had been advanced at the time into a most significant importance to the Australian colonies by the apparent imminence of war with Russia. New Zealand. I am not inclined to repeat the scolding which, it is understood, my zealous friend Sir Francis Bell, Agent General for New Zealand, under his high sense of duty, administered to the brilliant author of Oceana for this sole dark spot of his book. I see no sufficient cause. On the contrary, he has given us such a charming account of the aspects and prospects of this, the most magnificent of our colonies, for I agree with him in believing that it is to be the future home of the greatest nation of the Pacific, that certain loose or inaccurate words addressed to him about the finances, and which he had deemed worth reading, may well be expected to have, in comparison, the most evanescent effect. One gentleman, he says, amused me considerably with his views, the said views being to the effect that New Zealand would be ready, when the final pressure came, to repudiate her heavy public debt. Another equally vivacious informant stated that, besides the thirty-two million pounds of colonial borrowing, the municipal debts were at least as much more as the national debt. Now this is six times overstated for municipal and harbour debts together. No doubt the actual case is bad enough, for New Zealand has far over-borrowed. But as to repudiation, there is not a hint or notion of it in any responsible quarter whatever, any more than with regard to our British consuls. Although the colony is, for the time, in the extremity of a depression, ever recurrent in such young 
fast-going societies, caused by a continuous subsiding of previous to speculative values. To this I may add, in reference to the smaller issues of colonial municipalities, that of the very great number of these, New Zealand's included, brought for many years past upon the London market, there is not, in my recollection, as a matter of my own business, one single instance of default, as to either principle or interest, if we accept the sole and quite special and temporary case, above thirty years ago, of the city of Hamilton, in Upper Canada. UNITY OF THE EMPIRE This question has been in a course of rapid clearing during the last few years, and the successful establishment of the Imperial Federation League has given an orderly procedure in every way promising. The object aimed at is that the Empire shall have that political binding which will give to it the maximum of power and influence possible under all its circumstances. Above fifteen years ago, some few of us, very few they then were, first seriously raised this question at home in the Royal Colonial Institute. We had the smallest of audiences then. It is marvellous to look back now upon that indifference. I recollect that about ten years ago, when the movement was just beginning to look serious to those outside of us, a leading Paris paper devoted an article to the subject remarking that if Great Britain persevered so as to unite her empire as sought, the balance of the world's power would be so seriously disturbed as to call for an international reconsideration of that subject. The progress as yet has been chiefly negative, but it has been great. Modes entertained at first have been discarded, this may be said of superseding the present imperial parliament by a pro-Renata federal assembly, and it may be equally said of an influx of proportionate colonial representatives into the home house. Councils of colonial ambassadors, agents general, and so on, have, I think, definitely gone the same way. These are chiefly home views, the home is at length aroused as well as the colonies to their common question, and the summons by the secretary for the colonies of the colonial conference, which sat in London two years ago, marks alike the most prominent and most promising feature in the movement. Mr. Froud has given, most usefully, the views of the colonists. Let us take Mr. Daly's which is also that of most others, namely that the nascent but increasing colonial navies should be all under one imperial command, that is, be a part of the British navy. There is one more step, namely, to dispose of all colonial military force in the same common-sense way, and then we have a politically united empire but we are constitutional or representative in our polity, so that something else is still wanted. In short, the unity of the empire requires two things. First, 
that all its force be under one executive, and next, that the colonies be proportionately represented in that executive. The cabinet seems to me the adaptable body we can operate upon to this end. That body would then be actually, as well as legally, the empire's executive. Nothing should, nothing need, prevent the attainment of this grand end. The tariff bugbear concerns only commerce, and need not arrest nor even interfere with the empire's political unity. All other matters of the common interest can be leisurely settled by mutual consent, as the empire, in its united state, sails along the great ocean of the future. The mother will then, in emergency, have the sure call of her children, while every colony, even to the very smallest, will know that in case of need, the whole empire is at its back. When the rest of the world knows that fact, it will thenceforth probably not trouble our empire either about international rearrangements or anything else. Early Port Phillip Should old acquaintance be forgot, and the days of Lang Syne? Burns Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Haynes Bailey Entering Port Phillip on the morning of the 13th December, 1840, we were wafted quickly up to the anchorage of Hobson's Bay on the wings of a strong southerly breeze, whose cool and even cold temperature was to most of us an unexpected enjoyment in the middle of an Australian summer. A small boat came to us at the anchorage containing Mr. and Mrs. D.C. Arthur, and others who had friends or relations on board, and who told us that for some days there had been excessive heat and a hot wind, which had now reacted in this southerly blast, to go on probably into heavy rain, the country being excessively dry. My First Night Ashore The Hut on the Flat, James Henry How sweet, how passing sweet, is solitude. Cowper. The rain did follow at night to the full as predicted. I had engaged to accompany a young friend that evening to spend the next day, Sunday, at his country seat on Richmond Flat, where he had constructed, mostly with his own hands, a sort of hut or wigwam, under an unchallenged squattage. Being engaged in a store for long hours on Saturday night, it was past eleven ere we started. The rain had begun to pour, and the night was pitch dark. We got into Collins Street, but had much difficulty in keeping its lines, where there were not post and rail fences, round the vacant allotments. Only three years had elapsed since Melbourne had been named and officially laid out, and, excepting the very centre, there were still wide intervals between the houses on either side, even of Collins Street. After floundering helplessly about in the foundation cutting of a new house, which was already full of water, but happily only a few inches deep, we at length emerged upon the open of the present Fitzroy Gardens, 
where for a little time we could keep to the bush track only by trying the ground with our feet or our fingers. But in spite of all care we soon lost the road, and wandered about in the pouring rain for the rest of the night. We were young and strong, and as the rain did not chill us, we were in but little discomfort. A beauteous sunny morning broke upon us, with a delicious fragrance from the refreshed ground. We found ourselves near the Yarra, between the present busy Hawthorn and Studley Park. The solitude and quiet reigned around us, excepting the enchanting ting-ting of the bell-bird. We stripped ourselves, wrung our drenched clothes, and spread them to dry in the sun, and then plunged into the dark, deep, still Yarra for our morning bath, afterwards duly reaching my friend's country seat. End of section 2